The ludic function of satire is realised by wordplay techniques such as homophones, onomatopoeias, rhymes, acronyms, puns, neologisms, slang, pseudonyms and supercodes. Interpretation of the linguopragmatic means requires more processing efforts but causes a significant increase in cognitive effects. Whoa, you've just jumped straight in there, Joe. What are you talking about? Well, those are not my words. They are the words of V. Yushin, author of an article, Linguopragmatic Features of Persuasive Power of Satire Based on Private Eye magazine, published in the European Scientific Journal in 2021. Oh, that's amazing. So a genuine researcher has applied the strategies and tools of his or her field to analyse the specific dynamics and effects of satire in the magazine Private Eye. That's so cool, and I imagine quite nice for Private Eye. I'd love it if someone wrote something really smart and informed about the way in which this podcast realises the ludic function of satire and sort of showed how we did it and why it's successful in increasing cognitive effects. Fucking hell, that's impact. Private Eye must have been quite chuffed about that. Well, they did publish that extract, actually, and that is how I know about it. Oh, cool. So that's a nice bit of reach for the author to cite? Yes, except they published it in Sood's Corner, which is where they print extracts from the media sent in by readers over the last few weeks which they consider to be excessively pretentious, show-offy and just generally sesquipedalian. <laughs> sesquipedalian? Yeah, I got that from <laughs> Stephen Fry's autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> so what would be an example of the type of letter that appears in Suits Corner? Well, like some dude wrote a letter to the Times about how a pint of champagne is best served in a solid silver tankard and his particular solid silver tankard is a George II solid silver tankard by Cartwright, which apparently um, should mean something if you know anything about solid silver tankards, um, and he says that one cannot simply quaff out of a flute or bowl. Okay, so that's a bit of a read then. It, it is, what, putting it in Sood's Corner? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, it really is. So I've got a bit of a pre-theme tune <laughs> challenge for you, which will prove conclusively whether or not it is irredeemably Soody to do academic writing about satire okay okay so i want you to have a look at this quotation uh-huh. not quote which i said before the ludic function of satire etc and i want you to try within a fairly circumscribed time limit to say that in a normal way to just summarize what this um what this critic is saying go Okay, so the function, the ludic function of satire. That's not summarising it. No, that's, I'm the, just, that's reading it. I was going to so just do the okay, translation right. without explaining what it means. Okay. So ludic is to game to like gaming, yeah. isn't it? So the the game of satire happens when you use a range of techniques, <laughs> which include words that sound <laughs> that's like other words. That's not summarising it. It's just leaving out the word wordplay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. They include words that sound like other words. Words that sound like sounds. Words that rhyme. I think most people understand what a rhyme is. I don't explain. Uh, to me like I'm where five. Two, so where two words sound very similar in a in a metric pattern. In a, in a two where two one word has something in common with another word. Which I can't creates believe a you're a senior sound. lecturer in English literature okay. and you can't say what a rhyme is. Go well, on, so, keep going. Um, codes basically. Um, f- funny wordplay. <laughs> <laughs> um, made up word. made up words. Yeah. Um, street speak. <laughs> Yeah, okay. Um, fake names and. Um, Go on. And I'm just trying to work out what the next bit actually means. Interpretation so, so of the lingua pragmatic means requires more processing efforts but causes a significant increase in cognitive effect. Yeah, so. Explain so that to me like I'm three. It means that to understand, to understand and appreciate satire, 
You've got to spend more time working out what it means, but there's a satisfying thing happens in your brain when you do. Yes, I think yeah. that's it. Because I think at, at first you were just like power, giving a different word for every word. <laughs> so now that I've gone <laughs> the through... The ludic function. Um, so now that I've, we've been through it all and I've translated it for mm. myself, I think I can do it. I know that okay, this is so, quite a test. Say it then, so, say it now. Satire does interesting things with words and language mm. and ideas which make it sometimes hard to understand but if you take the time needed to understand what it says it makes you happy in your brain yeah and well it sort of produces meaning doesn't it the fact mm -hmm. that you've had to work at it and that there's all these layers of different um literary tools and devices or as this writer calls them linguo pragmatic means mm. so um i think you've proved there or we've proved together i've helped you get there yeah. yeah socratic style i think we've proved there we got to it together and um, through some socratic teaching on my part mm -hmm. and some willingness to learn on your part <laughs> that that passage is actually it might be using words and terms that are unfamiliar but mm -hmm. it's not um a, a sort of sudi pretentious thing to do um Unless you unless you feel like the writer should have used a, a shorter list or more accessible terms, that um, you can say things about satire and look at it and analyse it and think about the strategies and devices that a writer's used and um, and come to a solid conclusion. Yeah, yeah. and I think also uh, just something that I got from that exercise is what speaks to what this satire it does is in I think we try and take these ideas that we do that we treat very seriously in our research, mm. but then make them fun and accessible so that's what you, we do on the podcast you mean that's what i mean yeah. what did i say you said you think that's what satire does but i think you mean uh, that's, that's what, sorry, that's what this, talk about sometimes that, you need more words adam that's use right. them so um, that's what this podcast does and yes um, and i actually think it's much harder to explain something uh, in, a, in in a way that a lot of people can understand a three-year-old in fact mm. than it is to to speak in your suits yeah, speaking suits corner sudi fashion yeah so um shall we now listen to the theme tune and then talk about satire in a complex and interesting way and try and make it accessible and reach some solid conclusions. Yes, please. Go. Well, that was fun. And a really great way to celebrate our podiversary. D don't say podiversary. I... It's, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Like, I am not an expert on, on words and their derivations, but the Annie in anniversary surely refers to a year, mm -hmm. as in Anno Domini or uh, Annus Horribilis or whatever. Mm. Anniversary presumably means it has been a whole one, mm. and that's where anniversary comes from. So you can't have a podiversary or a twitterversary or a friendversary mm. on facebook can you it's no. like um like when people say they're chocoholics or shopaholics like that doesn't work does it because no. it's alcohol what does the versary bit mean in anniversary I, I i i can only assume it means something along the lines of it has been a Right. Because it's Latin, it'd be the other way around, wouldn't it? It'd be like, year it has been a... So if I said I'm this making is, it up. I but don't if know. it was like, this is a podiversary, what I'd be saying is, this is a podcast. <laughs> I suppose so, yeah. Yeah, but, um, uh, but adding the words together, even though you, you diffused meaning, do you know what that's an example of? A neologism. Which yeah, is a, yeah, a podiversary is a neologism, isn't it? A neologism, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. is a satire device, according to our ludic friend. Yes. Does it rhyme? 
depends what you're rhyming it with. Godiversary. Yeah, that rhymes. Yeah. yeah. Um, Twitterversary. Yeah, they all rhyme. Yeah, well, the yeah. end bits rhyme, but it's not a full rhyme, <laughs> is it? Like with Godiversary. So, yeah, um, but all of that being said, it is the what anniversary of our first episode of Smith and War Talk about satire? It's the, this is our third year with yeah, the beginning of the third year is that right so no, did the end- we start in 2019 yeah we did so did we, we had we had what is satire it was 2019 yeah then we had for our first because it's valentine's day when these come out mm-hmm. isn't it so for the first valentine's day it was janie godley which is a very memorable episode yeah. and that was not in the pandemic and, and then, then the, the 14th of february 2021 was very much a lockdown episode yeah with ollie yeah. grant talking about north korea um and then this is this one and then this is this one, yeah. Yeah. I think when historians look back, the Smith and Will Talk About Satire podcast will be a really useful tool for them to sort of map social and cultural changes between 2019 and 2022. I think so. And possibly beyond. Someone should do a book about that. Yeah, yeah, they should. Um, yeah, because we've... But, you know, we started it, everything was normal. A year later, nothing was normal. A year later... No, a year later, everything was starting to become abnormal. Mm-hmm. A year after that, nothing was normal. And mm-hmm. now things are sort of normal. But one thing that isn't normal is the thing we're not going to talk about today, isn't it? Because it's clearly going to date really quickly. Mm. And that is Partygate. So yeah, no more none Partygate of that. talking. None of that. No. Yeah. I'm just, I'll make one <laughs> prediction, which is that, well, it's unpredictable, isn't it? By the time this comes out, doubtless it will turn out that Boris Johnson has... Um, been paying to have journalists murdered for years and Keir Starmer will challenge him on it in the House of Commons and Boris Johnson will sort of throw something out there about how Keir Starmer is basically Dennis Nielsen and then um, then continue to be Prime Minister. Hmm. So that's my best guess. Okay. Um, I'm not a futurologist, I should make that clear, but it'll be, it'll be something like that. Very good. Something along those lines, I don't know. <laughs> so, so... Wait for the full review. So that's what we're not going to talk about That's in the what podcast. we're not going to what talk about. What are we yeah. going to talk what about? What are we going to talk about? Well, we're going to talk to Andrew Bricker, aren't mm-hmm. we? Dr. Andrew Bricker. Yeah, yeah. From Ghent um, University. Yes, about satire in the 18th century so that'd be very exciting um, mm. especially for you but uh, it was a really interesting interview I didn't even mind that it was about the 18th century about how satire actually in many ways shaped the law mm. and the way that the law is still implemented and thought about today so specifically around libel and how the law was used to circumscribe what what could be said and by whom yeah. throughout the so-called golden age of uh, satire. Absolutely, yeah. So Andrew has got a new a book coming out, which will, at the time of release, will have been out for four days, mm-hmm. um, called Libel and Lampoon. And the wardrobe. It's called Libel and Lampoon, Satire in the Courts, and it's about all of those things about the 18th century. But we know we've got at least one listener who isn't too keen on 18th century content, and they made themselves known over Christmas. Who's that? I'm not going to say his name. Listeners oh, can go yeah. back to the last okay, episode yeah. and, um, and 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 hear that story, yeah. um, which was exaggerated for comic effect. Of course mildly. it was, yeah. yeah. So, um, we used neologism, supercase puns, <laughs> wordplay. Yeah. I did. Yeah, but, so it's 18... a good cognitive effect, though. Yeah, that's true. Mm. But uh, but yeah, but please, this is this is about the 18th century. It's about how all this stuff started. But it has enormous ramifications, and mm. you'll hear, you'll notice as we go through the interview, a lot of parallels to yeah. the situation yeah the culture today the culture yeah hi ever um, before we get into it 
Uh, however, before we do get into it, I think we need to do a little set of explainers for some of the things that come up yeah. in the conversation that people might not know about because we've got a global audience. Or rather, not necessarily explainers. This is this is like a fun chat preamble that's going to touch on some of the things that come up in the interview. Yes. Just think if we call them explainers, it sounds like something boring. Yeah. Okay. It won't be boring. It'll be anything but. It's a. Quick chat. <laughs> Quick chat. Quick fire chat. Yeah. Yes. Um, okay, so what's the first thing that you think we should talk about a bit more? Andrew mentioned someone called Louis C. Clark. Louis C. K. Louis, sorry. Andrew mentioned someone called Louis C. K. You're thinking of Arthur C. Clark. I am. I am. Yeah. <laughs> what or who is a Louis C. K. and why was he in this conversation? Um, because he was a comedian mm-hmm. who um, was numerous allegations were made towards him by women he, that he'd worked with about inappropriate behaviour and um, sexually inappropriate behaviour largely to do with his penis and his repeated insistence on getting it out yeah. and doing things with it in front of them which they didn't consent to or want to see yeah. is that about the, the, about the size of it? I think that's it so I, I gather it's an American thing isn't it but I gather mm. he had a long comedy com- career but then it came crashing down during the early months of the pandemic. His long what came cr- suddenly crashing down? Long comedy career, right? Okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> came to okay. A, came to a head in the, <laughs> in the early months of the pandemic when it ca- it was it came out. <laughs> Just and right. Let's do this properly. Start again. <laughs> okay. So, and I think that's what happened, isn't it? <laughs> it is what happened. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's a Louis C. Clark. But but Louis, Louis C. K. K. But the but the point is that he may or may not have been cancelled he's certainly less popular doesn't have as many opportunities but that's as a result of him getting his penis out all the time yeah um to that various people it's not necessarily to do with his comedy so to be clear we were thinking about him and some of the other contexts we're going to talk about in the context of cancellation Mm -hmm. and the question comes up as to whether you know can people be cancelled for satire or is it that sometimes people who are broadly within the sphere of satire do bad things like that mm-hmm. and suffer a, a lessening of their social status as a result. So yeah, I mean, I think we pretty much say in those words yeah. what it is Louis C.K. did in the interview. But, yeah. Um, um, what's your thoughts about Louis C.K.? Yeah, no, I don't have that many thoughts other than I don't think you should get your willy out and show it to people. And I think if you do that for a sustained period of time without their consent, um, you should mm. expect some sort of repercussions. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, the next thing on the list is paper wars. Now, I don't know what those are. I can explain. So this okay. is an 18th century phenomenon. We have talked about these in passing on the podcast before. So this is, you've got this thriving print culture in the 18th century where more and more people are reading stuff, more and more people are writing stuff. Um, and a phenomenon that would happen would be arguments and spats in across pamphlets. So someone would print a pamphlet, potentially attacking somebody else. That person would then retaliate. Um, but... So, so it's these big arguments, but I think it's worth clarifying that there is a theatrical element to these. Uh, people would look forward to there being a paper war. It would be a big, a big right. controversy and a scandal. But sometimes you'd have, for example, Tory writers in the Scriblerian Club would sometimes have like mildly staged battles of wit in pamphlet wars, and pamphlet wars in many ways were good for everyone involved because everybody wanted to see what happened next. Everybody they shifted a lot of copy basically. Um, so when a pamphlet war kicked off, it was lucrative if it was a good one, um, and uh, and you got to test your wit. And but they were sometimes choreographed to, to in a mild way. Yeah. Um, so yeah, pa- there's more parallels there to some of the stuff that happens. I think 
on social media today if you want to see them. Yeah, and not just on social media. People like to see two people who are eloquent at arguing and who are good at, at kind of rhetoric and um, can take each other down. They enjoy seeing that and seeing the, the verbal dexterity of a spat between two people where mm. one might kind of launch a, a really detailed splurge of invective and the other one says well you basically love Jimmy Savile so would it be a bit like that very similar to that yeah, yeah. parallels there. I mean I don't parallels, want to diminish yeah. the fact that there were legitimate I mean there were a lot they were all they all there were paper wars that were about really important things sometimes mm. across party lines like they were they weren't all pally but there were instances where people pals would stage people one. pals people people who were pals people would stage pals. these slightly stage these paper yeah. wars and everyone involved benefited from it except the consumer <laughs> I suppose they enjoyed it. Yeah, because they would get the cognitive increase, wouldn't they? They would, they would. What's Dave Chappelle? Dave Chappelle is also a man, um, an American comedian who comes up in the conversation because we talk about the controversy around some of the things that he said in his recent stand-up, Netflix stand-up show, which was called... The Closing. The Closing. Or was it the closer? The closer. The closer. The closer. Or the closer. I don't know. Could be <laughs> that, couldn't it? Um, yes. So he uh, made some comments in a in a fairly sort of out with his stand up routine, um, and not where he's kind of doing anecdotes or firing jokes. He sort of pauses, doesn't he, to talk about um, J.K. Rowling and the various debates around gender and sex that that cause a lot of ill feeling in many quarters at the moment and there were I mean the, there was an attempt weren't there, by Netflix employees to to get him taken off and to, to sort of have him locally cancelled mm. which didn't work but I suppose the conversation there is well I think A it's useful to, to clarify that I don't think Dave Chappelle is or would classify himself as a satirist would he mm-hmm. he's a stand up comedian yep um, I'd be surprised if he termed what he did or if anybody else termed what he did satire. Yeah. But so it's not like he would say, well, I, w- I was being satirical. That was that satire. Don't you mm. understand my satire? Um, but it was something that, that caused a lot of controversy and I guess um, is also relevant to the conversation about, like, well, do people get, get cancelled for mm. doing satire? Yeah. Or do they get cancelled at all? It's an interesting. It was an interesting moment because there, there was the net. There was a few, some Netflix employees did a walkout, mm. didn't they, in a protest outside the building, and then there was a counter protest where Vito, I think his name was, an internet comedian. Yes, yeah, so I think he was probably the closest to being a satirist of anybody involved, yeah. wasn't he? Because he was kind of wow. It was fascinating, wasn't it? Because he's partly doing a protest of his own, mm. partly I would say satirizing the general idea of protests. Mm. And partly specifically satirising those protesters. Mm. Yeah. Um, so he's chanting, jokes are funny, I like jokes, I love Dave, yeah. which ultimately results in one of the other protesters breaking his sign. Yeah, um, and then shouting that he had a weapon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there's all sorts of stuff that happened. But the con- the most controversial, but the bit that all the controversy is drawn to, as you say, in the act, like it's not, I wouldn't, it'd be interesting to analyse it, because I'm not sure even if it's a joke. It's like a little, mo- it's like a monologue in the middle and of the And he does thing, do it? that, doesn't he? Yeah. He, he does intersperse the stand-up routine with reflection mm. or invective at times. So yeah, well, it's not called Smith and we'll talk about Dave Chappelle. No, it's not, it? it's but, not. I mean, you're right though, it would be interesting to mm. look at 
almost like have a chart of where the comedy ebbs and the the sort of chat starts and how then he sort of steers it back around to the mm. kind of comedy that he was doing before. I don't um, want to do it. But yeah, no, but I, I'd, like to, I'd be interested to see someone I would else definitely attempt. listen to someone else do yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so that comes up in and the conversation. That, but, and, then you've, and that also introduces the other topic, which is cancel culture. Um, yeah, although we don't. I wouldn't do we say. Talk about the cancel culture. Towards really? the end, we make a few mm. references to cancel culture. And do you think people won't know what that is? Well, I, I was just going to say if they're if they're not sure around the debates regarding the existence of cancel culture or non-existence <laughs> and its connections to uh, satire, then there's lots of episodes in our back catalogue they can check out on there. There's yep. can- cancelling Karens and COVID nineteen episode thirty with Lee Stein, episode twenty five satire left wing or right wing. We talk about it. Episode twenty two satire identity politics and inverted commas woke ideology with featured guests such as Lee Stein, Andrew Doyle, Sebastian Bloomfield, is something that has come up before. Yeah, because I think it inevitably does when you're talking about satire, doesn't it? And you are talking about culture. And yeah. And if there's any whisper of a war in the culture, that's probably going to... Yeah. But so, so I'm going to have a podcast of my own and call it A Whisper of War in the Culture. That's good. I like that. Yeah. Thinking about things that didn't happen that then get reported and turned into big debates. You mm. actually had a very recent experience, didn't you, uh, during your recent foray into popular journalism to offer some clarification and historical precedence for a big bust-up that was happening online about something that never really happened. I did. Is it okay to talk about that because it's not really satire? Well, it's just I thought it'd be interesting because yeah. it's something that happened to you. And, uh, yeah. And I've got a <laughs> well, it's not called it. Smith and we'll talk about things that happened no. to me, is it? But yes, no, um, I just didn't want to be indulgent or... Um, toot my own horn yeah if you think so this I, don't is think too is, I don't think there is any tooting just there, jump really, forward skip forward two minutes if you think this bit's too yeah. self-indulgent yeah. yeah um yes so there was a story in early january that was first covered in the daily mail and then in the telegraph about how apparently universities were putting trigger warnings on jane eyre and great expectations um, because what what proved to be the case on slightly closer inspection was there was a module at one university um, that was uh, I, it looks like it was a module that's kind of a survey module of Victorian literature um, which has all kinds of different topics and material and themes um, but because the writers I think the writers zeroed in on Jane Eyre and Great Expectations because they're books everyone's heard of whereas like the headline um Porphyria's lover now offends snowflake students would not sell as much copy because most people might not have come across Porphyria's lover but anyway they went for the novels and particularly Jane Eyre um, and all the headlines lots of the tweets some of the discussions on like Broadcasting House um, were around reduced the whole conversation to University slap a trigger warning on Jane Eyre. How insane! Children have been reading Jane Eyre quite happily for 150 years. It's never been a problem. This is why universities this. This is why students that. Blah blah blah. Nine grand a year. Blah blah blah. Outrageous. Blah 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 blah. Um, and my main response to that. Well, I had lots of responses to that. But one of the things I thought was most disingenuous and factually incorrect was the idea that small children have been reading Jane Eyre since 1847 without any problem or issue um, and a lot of the journalists who, who were saying that they had were kind of doing it as a stealth way to boast about their own parenting like I read Jane Eyre to my tenure blah 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 again um, but it is simply factually not true that children have been encouraged to or even allowed to read Jane Eyre ever since its publication certainly for a good decade or so afterwards it was a book that was handled with 
caution and that one wouldn't give to a young girl to read partly because there's a more general suspicion around the idea of reading novels and that reading novels is not a healthy way for a a young person to spend their hours getting lost in other people's dramas and frittering the day away with a book Um, but also because the book was considered to be fairly coarse and racy and even immoral by some so it was disingenuous and incorrect to suggest that it's only now that there could ever be conceived of being a problem with reading Jane Eyre and also nobody really said that there was Mm. but then people were saying immediately quoting the tweet quoting the article in the independent or on the conversation that you'd written and was saying Mm. uh, oh this academic's trying to defend trigger warnings yes that yeah um so it well it mixed response i think so some people thought that um yeah that, that i was trying to excuse the university by saying trigger warnings have always happened um, which wasn't my aim or intention. And I think so, some people just shared it because it's got the word content warning and Jane Eyre in the title and maybe without reading it just commented underneath, see, look, it's ridiculous. There's all these trigger warnings now about <laughs> Jane Eyre. Um, so, yes. And you did mention satire in the article. The word satire is there. Yeah. yeah. Satirically. Satirically is there. The word yeah. satirically. Yeah. Did yeah. that give you a cognitive increase? It did. Yeah. It did. And um, I actually went home at the weekend for my dad's birthday. Happy birthday, dad. And this article hit the independent whilst I was there. And I, I said, oh, look at this. This is Look at this article that uh, that's in the independent. And my mum quickly read it, really enjoyed it. And then she went, oh, by Joe War. Is that our Joe War from the uh, podcast? That's... <laughs> so, um, that's nice to, to feel like... Well, I guess, you know, I'm just a household name now, really. Yeah, we certainly <laughs> are in very, that house. very, very famous. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, um, well, yeah, that was, a, that was... Thank you for telling us about that. I think that was a useful digression. That's right. I and, hope people didn't mind. So one thing that comes out of that article is it raises questions about what we as literary historians do with presentism. Mm. So that's in the interview. What do we... What is that? Well, that is a good question. I know what it is. I no, I mean, I do, but I just wanted to... <laughs> double check that um yeah what what is presentism so i think it's when you look at the past and go is that what you did for your dad's birthday i I did again yeah yeah yeah. no it's um it's when you go oh the past is just like now or we Mm. can use the past to learn it very specifically about today yeah basically a lot of the popular journalism that i've read (laughs) so you think this is new it was the case for 300 years or also sort of evaluating the past by the standards of the present Mm. so like anachronistically looking at novels and um and poetry and plays and sort of thinking about them in ways that wouldn't really have been conceived of or relevant diagnosing or labeling people with constructs that are from the 20th yeah. to the 21st century so saying things like the mad woman in the attic has got manic depression yeah yeah so it's, it's sort of in one way or another it's sort of missing the nuances and complexities and differences between past and present mm. um, and viewing viewing the past through the lens of the present without being mindful enough that that's what you're doing mm. I suppose excellent because inevitably we do because we're from the present yeah but you just have to I think be a bit mindful 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 yeah very good right I think that's enough quick chat with all of that in mind it's time to get on to our interview with Dr Andrew Bricker it is yeah so just going to say a few words to it Dr Andrew Bricker, an assistant professor of English literature in the Department of Literary Studies at Ghent University, um, is very widely published on the subject of satire. 
um, particularly 18th century satire. He researches British literature up to 1800, and he's written about law and literature, the history and theory of satire, the history and theory of the novel, book history, material culture, and cognitive approaches to literature. What a guy. What a guy. Let's talk to him. Good morning, Andrew. Good to speak to you today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So I thought we'd just start by asking, you've got, we've just been talking on the podcast about your new book that's coming out, um, Libel and Lampoon, but for our listeners at home who aren't familiar with this text in this field, could you just give us a quick elevator pitch for what it is that the book is about? So my book is about the prehistory and sort of afterlife of what's now known as the golden age of satire in Britain or the great age of satire, this sort of amazing period between the late 17th century and the first few decades of the 18th century, where suddenly satire is everywhere and practiced by everyone is this sort of unavoidable thing in the literary landscape. My argument is that the law fundamentally shaped the satire we get during that period. And it fundamentally shaped it in two ways. One way was rhetorically. That is the language that satire came to use and especially the somewhat verbally ambiguous language that comes to characterize satire during the golden age. So that's one way, that's a kind of evasion um, of the law. The other way that the law fundamentally shaped satire was the physical forms in which satire was published, either in manuscript, especially in the 17th century, or in print in the sort of first decades of the 18th century. I also argue in the book that satire shapes the law. So new legal procedures develop over the course of the 18th century, usually by trying to target those verbal and bibliographical evasions that come to characterize satire, with the ultimate effect that the law kind of catches up to satire to some extent, um, with, I would say, the sort of larger goal of trying to erode the satiric landscape, which To some degree, uh, the courts and the crown are successful in doing so, but we can kind of talk about the later afterlife of satire. One thing we know about satirists and comedians is you sort of tell them to stop talking, they will continue to talk, right? And so satirists found new ways to sort of uh, use satire even in the decades after these legal interventions. Would it be a simplistic overstatement to say there are elements of the law as it stands today that are the result of of this engagement with satire and the way that satire shaped it in the ways you're talking about in the 18th century or am I just being really basic there? No I think that's I think strangely enough it's a hundred percent that simple. One way to think about the sort of history of 18th century satire is what's unusual about England during the 18th century and how it manages the press. So if you look at Europe in general at about 1700 Every single country has a pre-publication licensing system or system of censorship in place, except England. And that's actually an accident of just how parliaments organized at that particular moment. So in 1695, there's this thing called the Licensing Act, uh, which mandates that if you want to publish anything, you have to submit it to a government censor. That act lapses because the House of Lords is not happy about how members of the House of Commons are administrating that particular act. And so all of a sudden, the Crown has this problem. They no longer have pre-publication censorship. And so they begin to retrofit libel laws to regulate the press. And very much so today, most of press regulation, at least in Anglo-American common law, happens through libel laws. Um, And so these libel laws, which were retrofitted to handle secure cases, 
actually become the mechanism by which all of the press is regulated. And again, I don't think it's a simplification to say, thanks to those interventions at the beginning of the 18th century, we end up with the libel laws we have very much so today. Cool. So, so when we talk about libel in the 18th century, uh, we might immediately think about sort of high profile cases of libel in the in the contemporary moment. What are we talking about when we talk about libel in the 18th century? Right. So I think that's the, the most common form we have today. Right. So usually thought of as libel as personal defamation. Right. I say something bad about you in the press. I, I accuse you, Joe, of committing a crime, say an article in The Guardian, you sue The Guardian saying, I have libeled you in some way, right? And that's certainly the case in the 18th century, and that is the origins of libel law. It starts in the religious or ecclesiastical courts as a way of handling types of speech or writing that defame other people. But once libel laws become a press regulation mechanism, libel laws also start to expand. So we get something like blasphemous libel in the later 17th century. So the idea that you can libel religion. We also get obscene libel later in the 18th century. The idea that forms of basically what we think of as pornography today are types of libels. And then we have the development of the most important category, which is seditious libel. So any kind of speech um, in writing, that might lead to um, you know, a kind of seditious act or an upsetting of the peace. And that's usually the law, the law of seditious libel through which satirists are later prosecuted. So we actually have, it's this really big category libel. Um, we mostly have just kind of kept the personal defamation side of it, which was its origins. But during the 18th century, libel is understood in very, very broad terms. And that's very purposeful on the part of the Crown so that they can prosecute different writers, different publishers, different printers, all effectively using the same legal mechanisms. Right, so it's kind of like an invisible censorship that's ongoing, isn't it? Like if you said now, okay, just tell me what's not offensive, give me a list of everything, then yeah, yeah you're not gonna get that. Yeah, that's- the yeah, yeah, no, if you ask, yeah, if you ask like, uh, you know, comedians or something today, right, they would say, oh, you know, all of a sudden there's these hot button issues and we don't know, are we allowed to make a joke about this or are we allowed to make a joke about that, right? But I don't think anyone is prepared to make a list of all of the things you're not allowed to make jokes about um, because of course comedians would find a way around that, right? And at that point they would be censured again publicly and they'd say, oh, well, this is the problem. You didn't list, you know, definitively what I'm allowed to say versus what I'm not allowed to say. Something when I'm teaching, so I have a module or two modules that have satire in, but one that's explicitly about satire. And sometimes when I'm talking about 18th century satire, students will say things like, for example, recently I was having a conversation about Eliza Haywood's The Parrot mm -hmm. and the periodical The Parrot. And they're saying, well, did she write it from the perspective of a parrot because she couldn't say these things? Would she get arrested? Is it because she wasn't allowed or... Or even what is proposal, I've had the comment, like, has he had he had to pretend it's about cannibalism and not Ireland to avoid being thrown away? And sometimes yeah. I'm like, well, let's not think about that. Let's think about how the metaphors work and how the ivory is working. <laughs> um, but actually, there's this whole other dimension, isn't it? That, you, that, that they, they are shaping each other. And that, that is part of the, not necessarily the immediate motiv motivation, mm -hmm. uh, but, but sort of a language has evolved or a, a representative, a set of representative strategies have evolved because of that context which yeah. allows this kind of satire. Yeah, exactly, right? So if I claim I'm a parrot and then I libel someone, I, I can still be prosecuted, right? But 
Um, it's sort of interesting the extent to which, at least according to me, this sort of rich level of verbal ambiguity, right? A reliance, especially on verbal irony or allegory or parody, all these kinds of indirect forms of speech that come to characterize satire. And I would say even satire today, right? So just as much as the laws we have around libel today are an inheritance of the 18th century, I think the rich verbal ambiguity around satire, stand-up comedy, that kind of stuff, is a product of the 18th century. Um, if you sort of look back to the early modern period, satire tends to be much more direct. It sort of works more by invective. I attack you directly. I say what's wrong with you. This is equally considered satire in the early modern period. But this kind of rich verbal ambiguity is, in my view, a response to the fact that when presented in court, it is always the responsibility of either the libeled individual or the crown to demonstrate the precise meaning of a given phrase and to show that that phrase was defamatory, seditious, libelous. And so that even after the 18th century, even after we're taking satirists to court you know, every single week, we end up with a kind of verbal architecture of satire. Um, and that one that endures through the 19th century and the 20th century and all the way up to the 21st century. And we've sort of, I think, to some extent, forgotten the legal context that gave rise to the specific form of writing. So I think the legal context is important, but I also think the thing that lasts is not the legal context so much in, the, in terms of satire. What lasts is how you do satire, the sort of figurative language you use, the metaphorics of it, the kinds of evasion. That's so interesting. So in those court cases, the verdict, it sort of comes down to a matter of close textual analysis. It's the interpretation of this text is going to determine the, the, the verdict. That's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it's sort of, yeah, there's like two sides to it, right? So I always say the, the libel 101 class is I need to show that, you know, who's the victim, right? So if this person who's represented as, say, the priest or something like that in the satire, I have to demonstrate, oh, that is precisely, let's say, like Adam. Adam is the priest in the satire, so we have a victim. Then I have to show that what I've written about Adam is, in fact, defamatory rather than just mean or cruel or kind of a joke, right? And so in the 17th century, they sort of more concretely try to define what is defamatory per se in the courts? And one of the things that stays pretty consistent is accusations of criminality, right? So if I say, um, Adam, uh, the priest is um, sort of, he has bad hair, right? Like that's, a, that's not a nice thing to say, but it's not a defamatory thing to say. But if I say the priest murdered one of the, the congregation, that's a criminal accusation. And that's something for which you can be um, tried either usually prosecuted or even in a civil case. So in court, there's often a lot of this work that's being done, right? Who's the victim? And what does this precise statement mean, right? Is Adam killed a, a member of the congregation? Does that mean he literally killed them? Or did he figuratively kill them, right? And that's the sort of questions that get put to the jury who like a sort of advanced level graduate literary seminar are sort of sit around and say, how can we define concretely what this given phrase means, whether it's figurative, whether it's legal or lit uh, literal, and whether that qualifies as legally defamatory. So everyone's got to sit in court and do some really good close reading. This is more of the theory of what's happening in the courts rather than what actually happens, right? So the, the problem that a lot of prosecutors face during the 18th century 
is uh, jurors will say, well, I just, I don't think it means that whatever you think it means, right? And they won't be forced to explain how they arrived at that particular conclusion. I think the interesting aspect of that though is the reverse also starts to happen. So the courts realize, you know, we're not new, new critical theorists, right? We're not going to figure out a strategy of close reading that always leads to demonstrable definitive meaning for verbally ambiguous statements. So instead, they start asking the jurors, well, if you as a juror asked, let's say, 20 average Englishmen, what do you think this statement means? Then that should be the foundation of your determination of what this statement means, rather than your own idiosyncratic personal interpretation based on some sort of close textual analysis. So the courts increasingly realize, rather than dealing with these idiosyncratic subjective jurors, we maybe can kind of create an ideal juror or an ideal reader, someone who reads in predictable, objective ways. And the way they do that is by proposing this idea of the generality of readers. Um, and of course, as literary scholars, you know there's no such thing as a generality of readers, right? There's idiosyncratic interpretations of everything. But for the courts, this idea becomes very, very productive, a way to limit juror interventions in trials and to promote a kind of objective standard for the interpretation of verbally ambiguous language. So what would, if you wrote something then and it was determined by a court to be libelous rather than satirical, what would, the, what would happen to you then? What were the kind of stakes? It, it could be a lot of things. It evolves a little bit over the century. So early on, um, you, you could literally um, be hanged for uh, a libel offense, right? And I think the, the last uh, hanging actually happens, I think in the 17 teens, you could also be pilloried. Pillory is very common. So put in the stocks, usually in various locations around London where should the crowd wish they could pelt you with rotten fruit or sometimes even stones if it was a particularly bad offense. But even then the pillorying starts is reduced over the course of the 18th century and the last public pillorying I think is in the 1730s. So increasingly the court system starts to look a little bit more like our own. Um, you're going to be potentially in prison for an offense. You're more likely going to be fined for an offense. And one of the things that proves very, very effective is to create sureties for good behavior. So for instance, if um, Adam libeled Joe and you initiated a prosecution against him, um, Adam might be fined, I don't know, you know, 200 pounds and be ordered to serve a sort of brief period in a jail somewhere in London. But then the court would also say, Adam has to give 800 pounds over. So a huge sum of money at that time. For the next two years, during which period he has to be on good behavior, meaning effectively stop publishing satire, stop publishing anything that can be considered a criticism of the crown, of religion, of particular individuals. And this becomes a really effective mechanism for encouraging satirists and particularly encouraging booksellers to avoid publishing controversial materials. Um, so I think increasingly by the end of the century, they're using a monetary system to encourage booksellers not to publish satirical works and by extension, therefore, dissuading satirists from publishing works of satire. Um, but early on, it could be, uh, you know, fairly serious, right? These were capital, potentially capital offenses. So much satire 
Well, the language of satire, it's often remarked upon, like, there's a lot of scholarship on it, isn't it, that it's that it uses the language of harm and it's all about lashing and killing and destroying. But actually, for the satirists involved in the earlier period, that they actually could suffer a grievous, possibly fatal harm as a result of practicing satire. Yeah, it's a it's like the cruel irony, right, of the satirist. But it's also, it's sort of part of the reason why I think increasingly satirists when trying to justify personal satire, to try and justify, like, I'm going to attack the government, I'm going to attack the prime minister, I'm going to attack the king or the queen, say, oh, well, satirists are an adjunct to the law, right? So all of these things that the law can't do, all these ways in which the law can't censure an individual, usually for moral or ethical failing, that's the job of the satirist, right? And so one way to... Um, you know, a noble satire is to claim precisely contra all of the evidence we have about bad satirical activity that you're doing, you know, like the good public work of helping to keep people in line whom the courts can't otherwise access, right? And so I think even um, some of those moral or ethical defenses of satir satire that satirists start to develop are almost a way to fend off the prosecutions that they'll almost inevitably face when attacking an individual precisely for the kinds of things that the law no longer encompasses. So you talked about kind of going after royals and politicians and, and acting as a kind of an extra way to hold authorities to account. Mm -hmm. Is there anyone that a satirist in the 18th century really wouldn't go after, like, somebody whose the punishment would be too great and the consequence is too severe and you just wouldn't go there? Yeah, I, I think the answer is no, right? It's, it's sort of less, I think, generally speaking, right, if you look at the landscape of Europe, right, you don't attack organized religion, you don't attack whoever the monarch is. Um, but in England, it's much more a question of not who you attack, but how you attack them, right? So you see a kind of softening of the satire, the higher you move up the social hierarchy. So um, the king, you know, ugh, it's like you, you don't want to directly attack the king. You might want to attack the king through something like allegory. So one of the things you see a lot in the 18th century are these satires that operate um, through alien societies. So you say, oh, I went off to this magical island and there was a king or a queen who looks very much like our own king or our queen and who engaged in very terrible illegal practices, unlike our king or our queen, right? And so there's this way of proposing a kind of shield or cover, usually through allegory. But with people farther down the social ladder, those people with less power, less money, less prominence, there certainly seems to be a willingness to attack them more directly, right? So we see a lot of this sort of later in the 18th century on the stage in particular, right? Through impersonation or mimicry. But we also see it earlier in the 18th century in printed or written works where individuals who might not have a lot of legal recourse or might have an incentive not to bring certain issues to court are also attacked, right? So one example that's really good is um, there was a really scandalous publisher named Edmund Curl, and um, Alexander Pope, maybe one of you know like the big three satirists of the golden age of satire, often really enjoyed attacking Edmund Curl for his sort of horrible publications, his degradation of culture. And in the Dunciad, one of Pope's most famous poems, he claims that Edmund Curl has gonorrhea 
And communicable disease is one of the things that's considered defamatory. But he also knew, Pope, that he could attack Pearl because he knew Pearl would not take him to court. Instead, what Pearl would do is hire a writer to attack Pope in print and therefore generate a kind of paper war that would lead to more sales and more sales and more sales and more satire and more satire and satire. But I think on the part of Pope, that was strategic, right? He'd rather have these debates in the Republic of Letters, right? In the courtroom of public opinion, rather than in a courtroom itself. And so, yes, he's probably going to attack an individual he knows who will not sue him more directly, but he's also gonna be much, much more cautious when dealing with something like the prime minister or the monarch, um, for which there could be really, really serious repercussions. Yeah, I guess that's quite clever as well, isn't it, as a, as a strategy, because presumably Pope could take an educated guess that this guy is not going to enjoy going to court to talk uh, over a long period of time about whether or not he has gonorrhea. Like, yes. nobody wants to have that conversation, do they? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's like the game theory part of it, right? Yeah. Like, so one of the really crazy things about libel law is the truth of the accusation does not matter, especially during the 18th century, but also later on. So let's say you're curl and you want to refute this charge that you have gonorrhea. Unfortunately, at no point during the trial will you be able to say, oh, just to be really clear though, like I, I don't have gonorrhea, right? Like I want to really make that perfectly clear to everyone in the courtroom. Um, that question wouldn't come up. It's merely a question of whether Pope has accused him of having gonorrhea, which is considered defamatory per se, and therefore Curl's been libeled. So you get into this weird situation with victims where they say like, oh, I think I've been libeled, but to go to court, I never get the opportunity to say, oh, but this was untrue. And I wanna make that perfectly clear for the record. And if you lose the case, the impression is given that it was true. So that if Curl goes to court, does not have gonorrhea, still loses the case, then it's sort of been confirmed, not legally, not factually, but implicitly, that he actually has gonorrhea, right? So you can see why individuals would not be so comfortable dragging these sometimes very personal issues into a courtroom, only to have the truth of the accusation be considered a sort of side issue to the question of whether the individual has been liable or not. Yeah, that's really reminding me. This might be quite an obscure reference, but um, in an early Alan Partridge interview on um, when Knowing Me, Knowing You was on the radio, and one of his interviewees has written a book called A Gent in L.A., which it was appallingly badly reviewed. And Alan says, oh, yeah, the reviewer um, changed two of the letters in Gent, didn't he? he? He changed those to two different ones. And he says, yes, and I sued them. But unfortunately, you lost the case, and now it's perfectly legal for anyone to refer to you as that in writing. They can't say it out loud, but they can write it down, and they can write it on bits of paper and hold it up to your face, and that's um, that's perfectly legal. So the risks of yeah, the risks of taking that on and losing, um, quite quite severe, I guess. Yeah, yeah, not just for, yeah, and, and again, like you sort of think about the onlookers, right? The person who's considering taking a. a case to court, right? And then you also, you always just look like this tetchy bully who can't take a joke, right? Like that's the worst part. Like you walk into court and you say, oh, he said, um, you know, like I was a really unpleasant person to my mother. And it's like, I want to sue you so that the world knows that I've always treated my mother well, right? It's a kind of, um, there's, some, there's something, you know, not very obviously fun about this, but 
you kind of, even in winning the case, often seem like you kind of lose. And so in some of the cases where there's going to be damages for the libel itself, the jury gets to determine what are the damages. And for really unsympathetic um, figures who've been libeled, even when they win the case, they might receive like a piddling, you know, penny for all of their trouble because the jury is just like, yeah, I guess you were liable, but you know, it didn't seem that bad. And we, and they don't really have to justify what kind of damages they give to the figure who has that sort of victim in, in the legal case itself. So a question is, you know, would you want to go to court um, just to potentially lose, be considered a sore loser or to win, have everyone believe what was said about you was true and then only receive sort of like a pound in damages. Yeah, so there's a lot of incentives to just play the battle on the page, isn't there? And just, and keep the satire going. Yeah, yeah. And I think for a lot of people, you know, they say like, you know, I, I don't want to be a part of this, right? So in some ways, the most effective strategy in response to satire, I think over the last at least 300 years is not to respond. If you don't respond very simply, the argument is over and there's nothing, there's no more debate there to have. And so you have figures, um, again, with like say the Dunciad, there was one figure who had sort of been referred to it obliquely at one point. And he simply wrote to Alexander Pope and said, can you just take my name out of it, right? Like I, I've always liked your poetry. I'm not really interested in like these satiric debates. And lo and behold, the next issue of uh, edition of the Dunciad that came out, his name was no longer in it, right? He just didn't engage publicly in that kind of debate. And so I think whether you want to um, go to court and potentially look like this really sad little bully, or whether you want to keep the fight going in, in print itself, um, it's always kind of a lose-lose for the victims. It's very hard in a rear-guard action to come out the winner against a satirist. That's almost like, I think that reminds me of conversations again with students where we, I do, there's a first-year module where I talk about the Montague Swift pamphlet war stuff. Yeah. And one of the things I'm always keen to say is like, they both shifted a lot of copy from this. Yeah. Like, they, they didn't have to do this. The, so the whole paper was thing. But the way you described it there just reminded me of it was it almost as if that guy popped up in Alexander Pope's DMs, wasn't it? And said, can you just leave me out of this one? It's the sort of conversations you imagine happening in a lot of culture wars, yeah. like high profile culture wars stuff. Yeah, yeah. Days. Just untag me. Right. Like, I, I don't want yeah. to be part of this. Right. Uh, yeah. Which... Hello. Hello, Jay. This is a different day, and we're just going to do a little bit of context here, aren't we? In case anybody's wondering, who is Lady Mary Montague? Uh, what did she have to do with Jonathan Swift? You can hear more about that in episode 24, Satire on International Women's Day, but um, it's a quick bit of... Quick, quick, quick bit of clarification. <laughs> so Lady Mary Montague was a, a writer and a diplomat, the wife of a diplomat in the 18th century. She travelled... Well, she was a... Di Lady Mary Montague was a writer and a diplomat in the 18th century. Mm -hmm. She was associated with the Whig political party. She travelled all around Turkey. She introduced the smallpox vac vaccination to England and she also wrote satire. And she was involved in a paper war, if you like, with uh, Jonathan Swift, wasn't she, Joe? Yes, she was. Yeah. Yeah. So she, Jonathan Swift... Wrote uh, a poem. Wrote a poem called The Ladies' Dressing Room. Um, and it was all about a boy called Strephon sneaking into a ladies' dressing room and having a look at all of her stuff. And he finds it all very disgusting and yeah. dirty and he feels like he'll never be able to look at another lady again yeah. now that he knows that they sweat and have smelly feet and do poos. 
That's right. Then he comes famously running out of the room, shouting, Celia, 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 shits. Mm. Lady Mary Montague saw this poem and wrote a response to it called The Reasons That Induced Dr. Swift to Write the Poem in the Ladies' Dressing Room. And that, what happens in that poem? Um, well, in that poem, somebody who is clearly meant to be Jonathan Swift, isn't he? He's like, he's sort of walking in a pretentious fashion down the street and making sure everyone can see his big um, The Doctor, jewelry. the Draper and the Dean, which are three code mm. words for Jonathan Swift. Oh, clever. Mm. Cog- the cognitive increase yeah. is insane right now. Yeah. Um, yeah, and in her version of events, the Jonathan Swift has gone to see a prostitute who wouldn't dream of having sex with him for no money. It's very clear that he's got to pay the full price. But then when it comes to it, when push comes to shove... Um, it doesn't and he can't and she sort of mocks him but he says it's all your fault because you're so disgusting that's why I can't perform and she uh, and she is having none of that he says well I'll make you sorry for embarrassing me in this way I'm going to go home and write a poem about how disgusting you and all women are and she says go for it Um, well he says I'll be revenged you saucy queen replies the disappointed dean I'll so describe your dressing room the very Irish shall not come several little in jokes there works lots of levels yeah Yeah. she answered short I'm glad you'll write you'll furnish paper when I shite that's right yes and now back to the show you know what happened Yeah. the funny thing I, I always think the other thing that Montague did right was sort of her winning, she thought, um, is there's this, this anecdote, I, I can't remember quite where it comes from, but uh, somebody shows up to Montague's house and her, it, her sort of private toilet area is full of the books of Swift and Pope. And, um, and the person asks like, what's going on here? She's like, well, they, sh- they shit on me my whole life while I was living and now I have the pleasure of shitting on them every time I go to the bathroom. So oh, that's, that is... you know, that's playing the long game, maybe. <laughs> that's such a good epilogue to the whole ladies' dressing room um, saga, isn't it? And next, yeah, yeah. next year when we teach that, I'm going to tell them that. Yeah, yeah, I'll try to find the reference. I can't remember quite where it is, but I've, I've sort of always enjoyed the anecdote. And like most anecdotes from the 18th century, possibly apocryphal, but always illustrating a useful principle when it comes to responding to a satirist attacking you is to use the exact means they use to attack you to attack them back. So that, that line, you'll furnish paper when I shite, that's not, that's not, that is scatological, but also she meant it quite literally. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's one of these weird things. There's this strange association, right, between defecation and satire, right? This kind of um, bodily quality that runs throughout satiric attacks for the longest, longest time, not just sort of the content of them and what you accuse people of and the lowliness of the body, right, as a a stand-in for either a kind of ethical or moral failing, but the very idea that like the more satire you consume, the more you start to reproduce out of your own body. I was watching the record those recordings of um, a government inqu- an inquiry at the moment that's happening in England uh, into cronyism and corruption in the court, and basically MPs not declaring their expenses. And one of the mm-hmm. witnesses was Ian Hislop, editor of Private Eye magazine. Um, and it was mentioned during the proceedings that he is now the most sued man in British legal history um, <laughs> because of his, his work on the private eye. And I wondered, was there an 18th century equivalent, anyone who drew enormous amounts of legal ramifications for their satire? Yeah. So there's, you know, there's actually like quite a few of these um, sort of uh, bookseller, publisher, editor figures, right, in the sort of emergent periodical press of the early 18th century. So 
One of the other things that explodes with the end of licensing in England in 1695 is not only satire, but also the periodical press. Every week, it seems like a new journal is coming up, like the Parrot, right, as an example, new newspapers. And as the century sort of moves on, you see a lot of kind of party style newspapers or journals, right? So one of the ones that um, becomes really, really famous is The Craftsman, and it's published by Richard Franklin. And this is a guy from basically the 17 teens all the way through the 1730s, who is constantly being prosecuted. And if he's not being prosecuted, he's having these sort of illegal search and seizures conducted against him by the government. He's being threatened, he's being interrogated and on and on. But the whole time it seems like Richard Franklin figures out, oh, this is actually a really useful way to drum up sales, right? So if I'm interrogated for a specific issue of the craftsman, then I mention it in the next edition of The Craftsman. And so all of a sudden, the prior edition becomes a little bit more valuable. People want to know, oh, this is a thing that was potentially libelous, potentially libelous against, especially the prime minister, Sir Robert Walpole at the time, or against the king, um, but also drumming up sales for that new edition, which is going to describe the poor trial of Richard Franklin, this bookseller. And so he's very sort of strategic, much like that Edmund Curl figure, about using his bad reputation to always increase sales of their publication. So I think of the craftsman's like a really good example or analog for the private eye, right? Somebody who uses controversy to increase sales, increase prominence, increase the volume of his or her own voice. So what is emerging here sounds like a sort of endless cat and mouse um, game with tactics between the satirists and the authorities with always the prospect of being sued for libel, always the prospect that you might be libeled but you can't you can't risk losing face by going to court in some circumstances. So in in this kind of evolving tactical warfare, is there anything clever or smart or interesting that satirists do to evade detection um, or any clever ways in which they get caught. Yeah, so I, I think cat and mouse is actually exactly how I usually describe this interaction, right? And I think the only thing that's maybe slightly misleading about that metaphor is it makes it sound a little bit more schematic than it is, or that as if the government has like a real plan in place, right? Like now we're moving to libel, we're gonna prosecute writers in this way and this way and that way. And then as new kind of evasions develop, we're going to very tactically target each one, right? It's a little bit messier, right? Governments change. There's kind of like moments of domestic unrest where there's more prosecutions. There are moments where satirists kind of get a little bit more of a free pass and so on. So I think cat and mouse is the right way to describe the overall framework of regulation across the 18th century. But there's obviously um, not so much consistency sort of on a year to year basis. So uh, in terms of the question you're asking, though, about like, are there clever ways to get around right? So I've already mentioned some of the verbal ones, right, like using allegory, using verbal irony, um, using parody, all of these different kinds of literary forms to get around the problems of prosecution. And those are usually courtroom procedures, right? So the question of how do you interpret a given statement? The other side, which I mentioned at the beginning of our chat, was the bibliographical aspect, right? The publication practices. 
And I actually think that's the place where you see kind of the most creativity when it comes to evasion. The problem that every person wanting to initiate a prosecution faces is discovering who made this thing. So it's fairly common, I would say, the norm during the 18th century that works of satire are published anonymously, or at the very most, they're published pseudonymously. But in any case, you know, having that information on the title page of a given satire is not always so useful. So the question then becomes, well, what if we find the maker of this object, right? So the bookseller or the publisher, the printer, or someone involved in the commercial distribution of this object. And that's where the booksellers become sort of very crafty. So one thing they do is they kind of start to disguise title pages. And one way to disguise a title page is not only to use um, a pseudonym or to publish something anonymously, but also to title things somewhat ambiguously. So one thing that satire shares in common with the emergent market for pornography are these ambiguous double entendre names. Um, so that a work like a, uh, you know, a dissertation on the electric eel could very well be a kind of work of folk natural philosophy, but it could also be a work of pornography. Um, and so you see a lot with these 18th century satires, they often have really ambiguous titles. So you think of something like Jonathan Swift's The Modest Proposal. Right. It has this really long and, in fact, very boring kind of bureaucratic, technocratic title, right? A modest proposal uh, beneficial to the public, you know, like it's sort of on and on and on. But there's nowhere there that, that hints at this is a satire, right? And so even that's a kind of masking that goes on at the level of titles, which therefore need to be interpreted by readers. So how did readers know they needed to interpret these somewhat ambiguous titles? And I think one way is by looking at the imprint information that was on the title page. So where it was published, when it was published, and theoretically by whom. And publishers start to use all of these fake names for the publisher. And the one that becomes most common in the early decades of the 18th century is A.Moore, M-O-O-R-E, which, also when sort of viewed visually could be amor, right? So a work that's potentially signaling its own connections to pornography, but at the very least suggesting that, oh, if you know that amor texts are, you know, anonymous texts that have been published at arm's length from a publisher, then you also know, maybe I should look at this a little bit longer. Um, and so once readers start to understand that certain kinds of false imprints are also a good signal, like, oh, I should look at it. I should look at the ones that have with the false imprints. Also the authorities increasingly recognize, oh, a false imprint might be a sign of satire, a political work, a work of pornography or so on. And so then they subject them to sort of increasing inspection, right? So I think that's an example of that back and forth we were talking about at the beginning of your question. This idea that there's an evasion uh, eventually that evasion becomes a little bit less useful, usually when the authorities kind of figure out how the evasion is working. On the one hand, it doesn't sound like these increased legal pressures did kill satire in the 18th century, um, mm -hmm. but also the golden age of satire does come to a close. And you started by saying that you look at the, the sort of beginnings of it, but also the aftermath of it. Was there, did this have, an, did this have a contributing factor to the end of the golden age of satire? Did it 
I think in part, right? I, I, I'd sort of be, I'd be like really hesitant to say like, you know, the, the courts did their jobs, they stopped satire, right? Because we have lots of evidence that it didn't work. There's satire everywhere today. Um, there's satire certainly during the last half of the 18th century and the 19th century and the 20th century. Um, and so, I, you know, I'm a little bit hesitant to say these prosecutions were all successful in limiting satire, but it did, I think, disincentivize becoming a satirist of a really particular sort. Um, so a lot of the prosecutions were successful. And even in instances where the prosecution itself wasn't successful, often the costs associated with being prosecuted were enough to scare off a lot of booksellers or printers or individual satirists. So in that sense, it was successful. But on the other hand, I always think, you know, like, did people kind of get tired of living in an environment where a huge brunt of the literature was satiric, right? So I think of like our own moment. I find that like I spend less and less time around social media and particularly things like Twitter because I'm just sort of exhausted by the critical culture that exists inside those forms, right? Almost demanded by the short form of the tweet. And so I wonder if a kind of similar exhaustion set in, right? So that there's this kind of, I think, you know, in general literary history, this idea that Satire kind of dies off in the middle of the 18th century. Part of it might be audiences got a little bit worn out of it. Part of it might be the prosecutions dissuaded individuals from wanting to write or publish satire. But I also wonder, is it just the prestige of satire overall was sort of diminished? It sort of lost cultural capital over the course of the 18th century. And so though it doesn't disappear, it's no longer a prestige form of literature in quite the same way it once was during this really strange, and we might even think of as exceptional moment of the golden age of satire, right? It wasn't the norm, it was actually the exception to the history of satiric practices. But I was just thinking when you're speaking there, when we started this project, when we started this podcast, all the headlines were about the, the, the death of satire. Satire has died. You can't have satire yeah. on the edge of Donald Trump. Whereas this new year, when the film Don't Look Up came out, a lot of the critics were saying people have had enough. This isn't great. People have had enough satire now. This kind of Swiftian satire, we've had our fill. So in the space of five years, these headlines have gone from there's no satire to there's too much satire. Yeah. Uh, which, <laughs> which also makes me reflect, as I do when I think about the 18th century, on the difference between what's kind of actually happening in terms of the content of work and the ways in which the work is being labeled and people are talking about it. Um, I mean, as you mentioned there, satire, it doesn't disappear, but mm -hmm. people stop talking about it as being this prestigious, great, exceptional thing. Um, yeah, yeah, there's a yeah, kind of a strange moral panic, right, about sort of critic by critics, also the people who like to read or listen to these things. But then also by the satirists themselves, or I think in particular, like stand-up comedians, right, have been very outspoken, at least a branch of stand-up comedians have been very outspoken about the idea. We're not allowed to say anything anymore, right, lest we be canceled. Um, but then I always think like, well, what, who is canceled, right? Like, give me a really definitive list of people who are canceled specifically for their satire, right? So mm. a lot of the prominent examples you hear about somebody like, I don't know, Louis C.K., he wasn't canceled for his act. He was canceled because he masturbated in front of other female comics, right? Or even um, most recently, Dave Chappelle, right? There's this huge controversy about Dave Chappelle's stand-up. And I think, you know, he was held to a standard of perhaps more responsible speech, right? There wasn't an opposition to comedy or stand-up or satire per se, 
there was an opposition to a sort of ignorance around LGBTQ plus issues. Um, but was he canceled? I don't know. I think you can still watch his specials on Netflix. I think if you try to go see his stand-up in person, the shows are still sold out. So I think there's a little bit of a moral panic, like, oh no, there's satire is vanishing constantly. Um, there's too much cultural criticism around satire. People are gonna attack us online with satire. And yet it continues to exist. It, it continues to be popular, at least to some extent. And I think there are very few individuals who have been proactively excluded from practicing satire in a concrete, definable way, as opposed to simply being criticized when they say something that's born of their own ignorance, or that's just a sort of failure of critical imagination on their part. I think that's a really interesting distinction, isn't it? Because the controversy around Dave Chappelle was around a specific bit of his act when he said he wasn't being satirical. He said, this is what I think. This, this mm. is my opinion. Yeah, um, yeah. And this this is how I see it. And that was the bit that was quoted and that caused the controversy. Not, I mean, I expect Dave Chappelle is not first and foremost a satirist anyway, really. He's a stand-up yeah. comedian, but yeah. it was it was the most straight-faced bit of his act that was the yeah. most controversial, wasn't it? Do yeah. you I don't know, again, this this is one of those questions that runs the risk of being um, a bit basic, but you've, you've been immersed in all of this research and you've looked at all of these kind of really complicated dynamics and things that are emerging in the 18th century. Do you kind of find yourself looking at, at the world and the culture in inverted commas and thinking, oh, that's like that, that's a legacy of that, here's a, here's a parallel to that, or is it is it a fairly different landscape now, do you think? Yeah, it, I mean, it, it has to be a different landscape. And yet I'm, I'm, I'm also, I think, okay, so I think when I was maybe a little bit younger, I was very resistant to any act of presentism in my historical scholarship, right? I'd say, no, 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 this is different. You must understand it in its own terms. And I still think that's true. But I do think there are at least parallels between different cultures sort of at any given time. And Part of the reason that I'm still attracted to 18th century satire and the debates around satire is like, what does it do? What's its critical function in the world? Is it a good thing? Is it mostly a bad thing, right? And then how you legislate satire or prosecute it or manage it in some way in the cultural sphere. Those are still very real debates, I think, today. And I think that's where my attraction was, right? In the parallels between that moment and increasingly the parallels with our own moment. Um, this period where everywhere you turn, you can find comedy, satire, stand-up, sketch comedy, especially um, parody news programs. I feel like there's a new parody news program every day. They come even faster now than regular news programs. So they're everywhere. And yet, as Adam was saying, right, there's also this other side of people saying satire is vanishing or there's too much satire or cancel culture is destroying satire, right? And I feel like a lot of those debates are happening in the late 17th century, early 18th century. But then even a lot of the critical terminology we use now about what's valid satire, what's appropriate satire, I feel starts to emerge as well in the early 18th century and late 17th century. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can see, I, I can think of, it, like one the other thing that I work on and I'm interested in is kind of Victorian contagion and mm -hmm. so inevitably especially in the last two years every so often I'll think oh well that 
you, you don't realize that sounds a lot like the 1847 pamphlets about typhus. Yeah. <laughs> but then you also, you know, you have to be mindful that COVID isn't the same as anything else that's come before, whilst also seeing little snippets of things that do recall it. And I, one of the things that you were talking about earlier that I thought was really interesting and sort of resonates in a wider sense is the difficulty of saying, of pinpointing a moment or a reason why the said golden age of satire kind of fades yeah. away. And that it's a salutary reminder, isn't it? That things generally aren't attributable to one cause. It's not that Queen Victoria comes to the throne and no one wants to do satire anymore, or the turn of the century kills it, or that a particular person does something or doesn't do something. It might, it, it sounds as though it's a much more organic process that's a combination of people people moving on from one particular form or one particular fashion or just a, a general slow sea change in how things are that means it, yeah. it gradually fades and that I think that's important to bear in mind when people make pronouncements about well Trump's Trump's happened so no more satire or Brexit yeah. happened so no more satire What's particularly interesting about anything that might be killing satire at the moment is the persistent difficulty in discerning what is and what is not, particularly yeah. around the whole conversation that we're all like super exercised about at the moment with the Downing Street parties. There have been yeah. so many instances of jokes on Twitter or little memes or sketches where people have thought that they're real because, because everything is so bizarre and peculiar and mm -hmm. I'm not I don't know if that's got any precedent yeah well yeah so it, <laughs> when it comes to the precedent right like sort of working on early modern literatures you know I see things happen and then in contemporary society I say oh I can think of a parallel of this earlier right but then I always say well ask a medievalist right and they always have their own parallel they're like well actually in you know 1123 this exact thing you know so I think there's always ways to keep sort of pushing that timeline further and further and further back, right? But the, the issue of kind of causation, right? And historical change is one where I feel like I've spent so much time grappling, right? Like what role did the law play in shaping the satire of the 18th century? And I'm positive it played a role, right? And that's why I wrote a whole book about it. But I'm also positive it only played one role in how satire changes and how satire is practiced over the course of the 18th century. And so, you know, people always ask me like, was it, was it just the law? Was it simply that? And I can never say yes. And it's, it's always a little bit of a mealy mouthed, unsatisfying answer to say, well, it was complex, but it was complex, right? Um, I think moments where you can point to historical change have to be pretty concrete. So one of the arguments I pursue in sort of the latter half of my book after this period where satire is ostensibly dying, is that um, all of those courtroom procedures that focused really, really intently on mitigating verbal ambiguity in trials, right? Finding ways to prosecute satirists for irony, for allegory, for types of parody, and so on. All of those procedures focused on the verbal aspects of satire. So it became harder and harder in the last part of the 18th century to publish verbally ambiguous works of satire that would not be successfully prosecuted. But all that emphasis in the courts on the verbal dimensions of satire means the courts also failed to develop similar or parallel doctrines for visual materials. 
And so one of the things you see at the exact moment that written satire is sort of decreasing, at least in cultural capital, is the explosion of visual satire and caricature by people like Rowlandson and Gilray and the Crookshanks, like all of these famous names from this period. And what you see is that the courts don't know what to do with visual defamation because the entire structure of libel law was, here's a statement, here's how you interpret that statement, is that statement defamatory or not? How do you take an image of the prime minister naked and drunk and say, this is an accusation of criminality in X form? And so as far as I can tell um, on my sort of research in the archives, there's not a single successful prosecution for visual satire across the end of the 18th century and the first few decades of the 19th century. When there are successful prosecutions, it's usually for the words that are attached to the satire or that were alongside the satire, say if a visual satire is published in say a newspaper or something like that. But for images alone, there's no successful prosecutions and it's because the courts have sort of failed to figure out a mechanism for handling visual decimation, which is all to say, sorry, I know it's a very long answer, but this is an aspect where you can sort of say, the law affected how satire was practiced. It basically pushed satire increasingly into visual or deverbalized forms because that becomes a new kind of evasion, a way of sort of defaming an individual, but not doing so in words, which is going to be really hard to prosecute in court. But but why does visual satire rise? Well, there's lots of other factors, right? Changes in printing process, the fact that you can now have colorful images, the shift from an iconographic tradition to a tradition that's more similar to today's cartooning, right? All of these are factors and none of those factors have anything to do with the law. So even in that particular moment, I'm sort of eager to sort of say the law is one factor, we can point to it. There's all of these other causes that we can also associate with the growth of visual satire yeah, I suppose um, another well, another just an aspect of this that doesn't go away, and again, this is speculative, but we still have two parts of this, which is the law trying to decide what to do with satire moving into new mediums, or not just satire, but you know, freedom of speech questions. So, wh- what should the law do about teenage TikToks, that kind of thing? Yeah. But then there's the persistent issue of what should the role of the state be in in mediating or moderating the speech of citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, so. So you do get quite precise parallels in the in the manifestations of those debates, don't you? Yes, yeah. And, and again, like those debates are just sort of not settled, right? Even we, we like the most basic debate, is, you know, what's a valid form of satire, right? Is, is tied to what's a valid form of public speech? How should that speech be regulated? If you think that speech should be regulated at all, right? Um, and who should do the job? of regulating that particular speech. And I feel like we're still at this moment where perhaps there's less, well, I guess it depends. It's it's again, very country by country specific, right? So if you point to places like Europe or former Commonwealth countries, all of them seem much more eager to use statutory laws to limit certain types of hate speech, right? and whereas, you know, it's always America that's the big exception, right? Whereas America has, has very, very precise limits on how you can limit freedom of the press or freedom of expression more generally. And I think it's maybe not so surprising that the government unwilling to moderate 
free speech or the press in America has led to there being more public courtroom kind of legislation, right? So the role that things like social media play or something like Twitter plays in delimiting what they consider to be valid or invalid speech or illicit or illicit speech, um, which again are not necessarily legal definitions, but they're kind of evolving procedures for what we think is per permissible at any given moment. That's that's been really. I think we've I think we've covered everything and more. Well, thank you for having yeah. me. Oh, thank, oh, thank you. you very much. Well, I really enjoyed talking to you, Andrew Bricker. Did you? Bits yeah. Some little bits of news to wrap up. Yeah. Um. So. We really enjoyed talking to you, Andrew Bricker. We're going to do some more of that, aren't we? We are. Tell, tell the people where, how, when and what. So if you're a listener who doesn't live far from York, and many of our listeners do because we have a global Well, you can live far from it. You can yeah. get on a train. That's Make true. Make an effort. That is Jesus. true. Um, then you might want to come to York on the 26th of March for Satire Day, which is hosted by this York Research Unit for the Study of Satire, Y-R-U-S-O-S, um, chaired by myself and Dr. Senior Lecturer Joe War. Um, and there's two events the first one so on the 26th of March the first one is 2 to 3.30pm and it's called Satire, Libel and the Law a conversation with Andrew Bricker so if you have any questions or thoughts about anything that you've just heard mm. you should bring them along yeah absolutely and then that will be followed by an event at 5 till 6pm called Contagious Laughter Satire and the Pandemic with Lee Stein right recurring friend of the podcast yeah. Recur <laughs> recurring friend um, yes so we'll be talking about her uh, what to miss when yeah poems about the pandemic and also just reflecting generally perhaps on satire and self-care yeah and so all of those things and she'll be talking to us over an internet link but we'll yes. all be there in real life yeah we'll and be there when the talking is finished we'll be launching our book contagious laughter yeah it's contagious laughter contagious laughter talking about satire in the age of covid19 can you not even say laughter now? No, I've lost, I've okay. lost the ability to speak. I'm so tired, Katie. Um, <laughs> and also... Oh, it's so, as, it's so wrong. It's so bad. Seeing as we set the precedent for this, um, you've also got a bit of Bronte news. Well, it's another uh, York Lit Fest event where I'll be chairing the Saturday before that, on the 19th of March. Um, I will be talking to Michael Stewart about his work Walking the Invisible, Following in the Bronte's Footsteps. That's all the title. I won't be following in the Bronte's footsteps. Yeah, I haven't got TB or morning sickness. So yeah, I will be I will be doing that the Saturday before at two p.m. So if you're interested in the Bronte's as well as or even instead of satire, come to that. What a time to be alive! Yeah. So um, thanks very much for listening, everyone. I think that's everything we've got for this podiversary. <laughs> yes, and. It's very exciting that our book is coming out, isn't it? It is really exciting. Yeah, pre-order that on Amazon now. You can't. You can't, but we'll when the, when it's come out, we'll tell you everyone how they can get hold of a copy. Yes, uh, you, can, you may be sure that you will be informed as to how to go about getting a copy. Yes, absolutely. And then and when we're going to give some away. We are going to give some away, and yeah, so look something to look forward to. But for yeah. now, um, if you want to get in touch, do that. Yeah, send us an email at yeah. satinomore at gmail.com, a tweet uh, at satinomore, comment on our pictures on Instagram at talkaboutsatire, hit us up on TikTok. We're not on TikTok. We're not TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> no, we're not, no, no, no TikToks um, yet. No TikToks yet. You're right, in three years' time, we'll be on here saying it's our TikTok anniversary. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
we won't do that. Yeah, so you could do do all of that if you've been um, affected in any way by any of the issues raised. Um, yeah. Just tell us about it. Yeah. Um, Please do give us a yell. Yeah. Anything else we need to tell them? I think that's everything. I think that's everything. Yeah. So, yeah. sit up. Just shh. Shut up! <laughs> and eat my ludic satire. <laughs> Bye! Oh, the cognitive increase. <laughs>